guys. Um, we're going to these one. Verses 12. So, the vanity of wisdom. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I, ha I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my hearts desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as the fool there is no endearing remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all, for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned above and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. 
even in night, even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, um, you know, Solomon needs a hug here. Um, anybody think that? Can, can we just give him a teddy bear and a hug and make life all better for King Solomon? Um, some of you might be like, whoa, this is in the Bible? Like, for real? I can't believe it. You're trying to pin through it. And then this little book in the middle of the Bible, you're like, there it is. I found it. Describes my life perfectly. There we go. And this is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book that it seems confusing because life seems confusing. It seems conflicting because life seems conflicting. But there are answers. There are wonderful and powerful answers that we find in this book. So I'll admit in studying this over the last few weeks, this morning I got in my car and turned the key and the car didn't start. And I said, vanity, (laughs) vanity, everything is vanity. (laughs) This striving after the wind. And maybe you've had days like that. Months like that, years like that, when you, when you hear the words of the author, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, you cannot help but resonate with these words in the various times of your life. And, and I would even tell you that if you don't, if you have not, or if you're unwilling, there are these bubbles that insulate you from reality that need to be bursted. They need to be popped. And so the author of Ecclesiastes here is doing a demolition job on those bubbles. (laughs) These bubbles that we create that help us kind of get out of the true view of life and reality. And then they kind of put us in this really rosy, birds are singing, chirping type of world. Which is a real world that, that does exist. But there's also sadness and sorrow. death and difficulty. And the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher here, does not hold back with the needle that bursts those bubbles. The needle is death. And he says, you want wisdom? Well, let me tell you how valuable wisdom is. The same thing that happens to the wise also happens to the fool. Do you want gain through your work, profit from your labor? Who's going to get it after you die? Who's going to get it? Are they going to Be wise with the resources that you have worked so hard to toil for and labor over that they're going to do you right with that. So some way your name and fame would resound in the world because of all the hard work that you've done. Is that really going to happen? And he just takes the needle and he bursts that bubble and he bursts the next bubble and he bursts the next bubble. And you live in this and you start to see, man, he's saying something that's significant. And I better pay attention. I better pay attention. And and I'll tell you this, that we should pay attention to this because there's a big idea 
that the whole book of Ecclesiastes wants to drive home for us today. There's a big idea that the author, King Solomon, the preacher, but more than that, King Jesus wants us to realize about our lives is that life is not gain in God's world. Life is gift. Life is not gain in God's world. Life is gift. The moment that you think life is gain, it's when you realize you think you've earned it. Somehow you, you made yourself be born. <laughs> Somehow you, you got here and you are God's gift to humanity. And because you are God's gift to humanity, you know, everybody owes you something. They owe you something. I mean, it's not a life that's lived in gratitude. It's a life lived in demand. Because I've earned it, because I've gained it, then I'm worthy of it. And so therefore, I demand it. And Solomon has lived that life. He's played that game. And he's doing the work for us. We don't have to do it. There's not an Ecclesiastes part two. You don't get to take part in this experiment like Solomon did so many years ago. You don't have the power. You don't have the wealth. You don't have the resources to do what he did to seek this meaning in life and find out that it's all vain. And if you do, it's just called sin, by the way. You don't get to play it. But he's done it. And we get to learn from him and hear his words. Meaningless meaningless vanity upon vanities the greek word is hevel it's like smoke that you see in an instant and you try to grab a hold of it and then it slips through your fingers it's like a mist it's like a fog it's here today and it's gone tomorrow so your life isn't completely meaningless that's not the point that the author wants to get across cross it's temporal it's temporal our existence is short and if you want your life to find meaning and significance. You have to look in the right places. So therefore, life is not gain. Life is gift. I want to give you an example of this in, in my life. So um, today is kind of a hard day for me. Um, my, uh, my dad, I, as you all have been tracking with me in life, had passed away on February 28th. Um, today's May 5th. It's my mom and dad's, uh, would have been their 41st anniversary. And so um, it's weighing heavy on me, in, in all honesty. And it's not just that, it's all the things surrounding the closing of chapters and the opening of new ones. The, the chapters I wasn't ready to close are the chapters that we're finding ourselves closing. And the chapters that I don't really want to open are chapters that we got to go through. We got to open, we got to start this thing in a different way. And the thing that has brought us to this reality is the death of my father. It, it, it forces us to deal with it. There's one unwelcome reminder for all of our lives that we are not in control, and that's death. And you feel that in the life of a loved one. And statistically speaking, this is going to happen in your life as well, because no one's beaten the odds. One out of one people die. They're staggering statistics. And we face that reality today. And so we cannot help but to look at life within the narrow tunnel that the author demands us to look at it. And that is through the lens of our impending death. That is to see that life is not gain, but life is gift. So last week, 
I went down to uh, my mom's house in South Florida and um, uh, I had to do a funeral for a friend of mine uh, who passed away. He was a childhood friend, uh, probably my best friend through about the first 12 years of my life. We lived down the street from each other. And um, he, dried, he died of a drug ado- overdose. And it was really tragic and really sad. And, um, and uh, his mom had asked that I would do the funeral. And, and uh, you know, going into this time of grief was... was um, you know, having the, the burden of loss, my father was really something that, uh, it, it wasn't very hard for me to do because I was already in that state of grieving. And so I walked into that and God used it in a powerful way in this time. Um, and, uh, I was really amazed to see how the gospel goes forward into an unbelieving world. It just was remarkable. And, uh, as how you share the God and there are people that start to pay attention. And death is one of those megaphones that allows people to hear you. Um, but there was also something that took place before that funeral. And that was, uh, I had my dad's employees from CNW Engineering out to lunch. We're about seven days from closing the company um, that we've been selling, hopefully. <laughs> and so um, we, uh, m- mom and I, I drove down, I picked mom up and we drove to, um, uh, to have lunch with the employees as kind of the last time that we're with them to, to uh, have a time together to, to really recognize that what God has given us here has been a gift. It's been a gift. Um, I remember when I was a child, I was probably about 10 or 12 years old, and dad was starting this company outside of our living room. He had his draft board there, and we had the landline telephone, um, the, the, that was where temporarily the phone had to ring for people to call C&W Engineering. And so when dad was gone and mom was working at Walmart, she needed insurance for the family, so she got a job at Walmart. It was hard times. And I remember when, when, when dad had left one day, he said, hey, uh, I've got people calling the house to call for C&W Engineering. So he's asking his 12 years old son who's kind of got crackled voice not even hit puberty yet to answer the phone and so um i answer the phone uh good afternoon cnw engineering how can i help you it was not nearly like that it was like a little kid good afternoon cnw engineering how can i help you Uh, (laughs) and um and i i remember these vivid memories and then i also realized that that what started in our living room became a business that sustained our family put me through college, helped me get in ministry, supported our church, had done so many good and faithful things that God had used this company for. And now we're coming to a point of closure. And am I, the choice I'm, 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 I'm having to make now, yesterday, tomorrow, am I going to see something as I deserve being taken away from our family? Not just the business, I'm talking about my dad's life. Am I going to see that as something that's being taken from me because it was my gain? Or are we going to look at this and see it as a good and perfect gift that God has given? And and this lens that Solomon wants us to look at, these glasses that he wants to view life through, help us ask that question. Do you live in view of God's gift? And that's where Solomon asked last week as we study the the first chapter, the first 11 verses. He says, what does it profit a man? 
What does it profit a man for all of his labor under the sun? What, what does he gain from it? What good does he get from it? But Jesus asked the question. And when Jesus asked the question, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That, that's the question that actually Solomon points us to ask. What, what does it profit us to gain everything but to lose our heart and soul in the midst of it. And this is the question that we ask through this passage. And we see through the life of Solomon that he's dealing with it honestly in his own life. He's making some powerful admissions of his own failures. He's making some powerful statements about the significance and meanings of life. And he's saying in so many words that he's wasted his life until he turned to his hope in God. And that's the truth of the gift. If we're living in God's world, life is a gift. If we're living in the horizontal reality of the left and the right, then it's just life under the sun without regard to God. It's just life distanced and divorced from God. And so... He's asked, it's really, who cares? Who cares? But if it is a life that's connected to God's world, it means that somehow we're connected to him. And somehow, somehow we need him to go through it. Life's not gain, but gift. David Gibson says, the gift of God does not make this meaninglessness go away. The gift of God makes the vanity enjoyable. Again, that word vanity, the temporary nature of our life enjoyable. It makes this here today, gone tomorrow, have something of satisfaction and significance. So um, let's start at verse 12 and 13. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So what, what Solomon is going to describe to us is the human search. The human search for meaning. The human search for significance. The human search for happiness. If you watch TV today, you're going to have all of these commercials tell you life will be happy if you just buy my fill-in-the-blank product right? Life will be happy if you just buy this car. Life will be happy if you just take this vacation. Life will be happy if you just switch cell phone providers. Life will be happy if you just get an upgrade on your iPhone. Life will be happy if this. Life will be happy if that. And everything in the world is like this graphic um, illustration of shiny objects that's telling you, buy this, buy this, give your life to this, sell your soul for this, because everything is demanding that you give something in order order to gain happiness, happiness, happiness. And Solomon's saying, I've begun this search. I've done this search where I am seeking out wisdom under heaven. And as I said it earlier, his wisdom has surpassed everyone else's. There was a prayer that uh, in a vision that God gave to Solomon was that he, he asked Solomon, what, Solomon, what would you like? If you could ask God for one thing, what would you ask for? And Solomon prayed that God would give him wisdom. And God said, since you've asked for wisdom over wealth and power, 
It's a humble prayer. And he granted Solomon wisdom. And with his wisdom also came wealth and power. And so outside of Jesus Christ, Solomon is history's wisest fool. He's the one who has more wisdom than we could ever imagine or think. And he's saying he's applied his heart. He sought it with diligence. He's put his whole heart and soul into this search for meaning under heaven. He's got wealth that has surpassed everyone else's. And he also has the power to do what he wants to do. And so Solomon is the one who's fully equipped for this search of happiness, this search of pleasure, this search of something that will make his heart contempt. It's like the U2 song that he finds out later on. Now, if U2 was back then, he would have bought the band because he had that much money. It says, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's the only way they'll let me sing up on stage if I slip it in during the sermon. And so, got it. Okay. And Blaise Pascal is a, um, just a brilliant thinker. Uh, and um, he, he said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both. Attended with different views, the, this will ne- uh, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. That motive, all men seek happiness. We seek happiness. And that seeking of happiness is this insatiable desire and appetite that when the world begins to taste bitter, if the only way out is happiness through death, then we will take that means because that is the means towards happiness. It's the wrong way to go. It's the wrong way to go because we are on this search, but we haven't found it the way that God provides it. So there's a human problem. And the human problem is described here kind of in the middle chunk of this scripture. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and is striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. So in in order to prove his point of of the vain nature of life, he he uses this proverb, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What has happened has happened. That you can't really make life add up. The illusion here, the, the thing that he's wanting us to see is that sin cannot be erased. Sin cannot be undone. That the unhappy burden of the children of men in trying to make the world right is not going to allow them to do this one thing. And that's erase sin from the planet. It's not going to happen. We can take straws out of the picture and remove them with plastic lids. But we cannot. We cannot. And I'm telling you, we cannot 
erase sin. It's been done. It's been tried. Nobody has been successful. We are here thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of years later. And we find that sin from the garden of Eden to now east of Eden today, sin still remains. And all the politics and all the armies and all the projects that in our humanitarian efforts we try to undertake, we are not able to deal or reckon with this sin problem. And he's saying, what is crooked cannot be made straight and life just doesn't add up. Why? Because sin still exists in the human heart. It still exists in the human heart. This is true of you and it's true of me. It's not something that's outside of us. It's something that's inside of us. It's something that Solomon has to deal with himself. And he's created this bubble of illusion around him that causes him to avoid this reality that thinks that maybe I could just put some makeup or gloss over my sin problem while pretending it doesn't exist and I could pursue these things and justify myself by these things and somehow I'll find myself happy. But that big black hole in the middle of his mansion just says it ain't gonna happen it ain't gonna happen you have got to deal with the sin problem and the thing that we're dealing with today as it relates to humanity is that we seek to avoid it rather than deal with it am I not right it's true we want to avoid it. We want to avoid our propensity towards the dishonoring of God or the disregarding of God in our lives. And that's why we come up with problems. That's why we come up with difficulties. One author was talking about this some years ago and, and how the world scolded the church because in the, up, in the AIDS epidemic back years ago, the church offered a suggestion and they said, how about this? How about we just have... Sex within a context of marriage in a man and a woman, and that will protect us from getting AIDS. And there was a backlash against that. I, I say this with compassion because we know that the world is wired outside of God's heart and that we are re- rewiring it into our heart's image. And so therefore we are kicking against the goad. We are going against the grain of the way that God has made humanity to love him, to pursue him, and to worship him. And we are finding at the end of time that the words of Solomon are true, that all of our best efforts in the horizon of of the horizontal plane of left to right are failing us. They're failing us. And we're not figuring it out. We're not doing the right thing in order to overcome it. We still are making vain attempts to solve humans' problems. And he says, this is vanity. This is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1.18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he, he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. The more you, you fill your heart with information, the more you fill your mind with information. It's, it's a paradox. It doesn't transform you. It just makes sorrow upon sorrow. Th- think about it in our world today. We are so filled with any and every type of information and knowledge, but yet we don't find lasting enjoyment from us. All of our degrees, all of the uh, 
the certifications, all of the bachelor degrees in colleges. We try to find some achievement in those programs. But again, is it helpful? Yeah, maybe it's helpful under the sun. Maybe, maybe there are things that that achieves and that accomplishes, accomplishes, but is the world still left with a gaping hole of problems? It is. It is. And Solomon is there again. He says, man, like, we're not really chipper here, are we, this morning? It's like, I can't get very many amens from this crowd today. And uh, this Solomon, man, he just needs to watch Game of Thrones and get it over with. Um, His life will be much better. No, no, it's, um, uh, he's bursting that bubble. So, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. We read the, these words. You know, one of the things as you pick it out, if you've got your scriptural journal, I encourage you, circle every time he says, I, me, or my. Every time he says, I, me, or my. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And behold, but behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. So he didn't get drunk enough in order for it to collapse him. Um, he said, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what, good, what was good for the children of man to do under heaven for the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. And all of them, uh, or I'm sorry. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. Now, he's undertaking these wonderful things in order to find enjoyment of life. I mean, how many of us don't like to build something? How how many of us don't like to build something? How many of us don't like good comedy? I mean, just good comedy. Like, get me Chris Rock or Dave Chappelle or or who's the Christian guy? John Christ. Um, we can have them and, and just do comedy. Fill my heart with laughter. He's saying, I've undertaken all of these things and it's just left me empty. 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 It, it doesn't mean that at those times he didn't experience any joy or any laughter or any contentment. But as he's looking back at his life and he sees what it's produced, he says, you know what? It's not done anything. He's just on this treadmill. He's like a rat just going in that wheel around and around and around and around. And he's running and he's finding himself exhausted and he's got nothing to show for it. It's vanity. Chasing after the wind. He became a builder. Better than David Weekly Homes. Right? He's... Uh, got his house in better homes and gardens like the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. Cannot touch the house that Solomon built in Jerusalem. It took them 13 years to complete. By the way, Solomon also built the temple of the Lord, the house of God. That took seven years. He decided he was going to build a bigger and more powerful estate of himself. And so he also had planted vineyards and gardens enough to also have livestock that would have to feed all of his servants. It's estimated that he had 15,000 slaves and servants in his court. So this is a guy who, when he woke up, didn't even have to put his shoes on. And like, if Mike is in here, he'll like that. He, He had somebody grooming his beard every morning. He didn't even have to worry about that. 
he was so taken care of in every aspect of life, but he still couldn't find contentment. He still couldn't find pleasure. Even to this day, you can visit Jerusalem and see the pools of Solomon where these craters are left there that were filled with water that would water the forests. You like gardening in the back of your yard. It's really great, but you can't touch what he did because it doesn't have national forest after it, right? That was Solomon's gardens. That was the forest that he planted. He undertook these great projects in order to find significance and meaning, and he couldn't find it under the sun. He was the A-list celebrity. If you wanted to have somebody at your event that was going to liven it up, it was Solomon to be there. He was also on the cover of Fortune magazine. He made Forbes top 10 billionaires number one every single year. This guy had it all and he did it all. And he says in verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who, who were before me. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I consider all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity in a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Again, a life that does not regard the world as God's, is a life that says we come and go, and tomorrow somebody owns our stuff, tomorrow somebody takes our, our work, and tomorrow everything that we do, it has nothing to show for, no matter what we've accomplished. Let me bring this down to reality for our day. We, we can seek happiness in any different view of things. Maybe tonight it's going to a comedy show. Maybe it's watching your best, your best show on, on Netflix that you'd like. Maybe it's Game of Thrones. Maybe it's building or achievement. Maybe it's going to work tomorrow and, and having that to-do list and knocking it out. Or maybe it's having these clients that you want to satisfy or these clients that you want to take into your company. Maybe it's building a family, raising kids. Maybe it's marriage or sexual pleasure. Maybe it's just happiness and becoming famous or becoming great in some way. Solomon's able to tell you and he's able to tell me that he's done all that and it's gained him nothing. Why? Because he's been chasing after the wind outside of God. And sometimes what we do as we chase or are on this search for ourselves is that we think that, man, if my life isn't happy, I've just got to change something in the circumstances. And if the circumstances change, then my life is going to get better. But we refuse to look at the heart. So we think as it relates to our marriage, man, if, if I was married to this woman or if I was married to this man, then the grass would be greener on the other side. That's not true. Or we think that if I just had these type of kids, then my life would be better. If we think if I just had this much more money in the bank, then life would be more meaningful, more pleasurable, more significant. 
And we pursue these things and we give our lives to these things. And when we have them, which sometimes we do, like right now, you've got it. You have what you've pursued after. How's life? You still got problems, don't you? You've still got challenges. You're still in need of God's grace and mercy. Ecclesiastes 13. Then I saw that there is more to gain in wisdom than in folly, and there's more to gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceive that the same events happen to them all. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. So now he's coming to analyze what is probably been his greatest asset, his greatest strength, which is wisdom. I mean, they brought Solomon on the Dr. Phil show, and he told Dr. Phil a thing or two, right? Oprah Winfrey brought him on the show, and she sold his books, and he didn't even need her to make his books the New York Times bestseller. He was so wise, and his wisdom, as he analyzed it, got him the same place that it got the fool. In other words, the king was buried six feet under, just like the court jester. And he came to that conclusion. It's all vanity. Death is the great equalizer. Death is the thing that everyone has to go through. It's the thing that as we live our lives and evaluate our lives and evaluate our lives in light of death, it it makes us not better or boastful than anyone else because we are all going to suffer the same fate. And we all are not in control of our lives. No matter how wise we might be, the fool is going to experience the same fate as the wise. Woody Allen, the comedian, said, I don't want to achieve immorality through my work. I want to achieve immorality through not dying. I want to live on in the, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. <laughs> That's, you know, it's better. It's better that I, I don't have to gain this kind of fame and stature through the achievement of my work or uh, living on in the hearts of my countrymen. I just would rather live on. Verse 16, for of the wise and of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was so grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. So Solomon, he's seeing, he's starting to see his, his kids And he's looking at his kids and he's saying, man, (laughs) things aren't good. Things aren't good for us. Things aren't good for Jerusalem. Things are not good for life because he knows that he's going to leave everything behind for his children. And sure enough, as he left his, his kingdom to his son, it was split in two. And everything Solomon had built up started to collapse as he left it to his heir. And he's realizing here that everything he's achieved will amount to nothing as long as he does not seek to honor and trust God. So, there's a lesson there. If you're living for gain, you lose. If you're living for gain, you lose. 
If you're living to, for some kind of profit outside of God's prosperity and purpose for your life, then you lose. And so he turns us here to the divine gift in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who could eat or, or who could have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. So life is not gain, life is gift. And what Solomon is saying for us here today is that if we pursue life as a gift, life can be enjoyed. You can go home after this and you can fire up your stove and make tacos and enjoy the salsa with cilantro and chips and salsa. And you can enjoy it with glad and generous hearts because it's a good gift. But it's a good gift that came from God. It's not what you've achieved. It's what God has given to you. Right? You can enjoy your family. I'm hoping that today we can just play tag in the pool and I just clobber my kids at it, right? That they just lose over and over and over again because I'm a faster swimmer than they are. They got nothing on their dad. They might in a few years, but I'm going to relish it while I can. I'm going to enjoy that. I'm going to enjoy the good gift of relationship. Why? Because it came from him. Because he gave it to me. And then I'm remembering that day on February 28th when my dad passed. And I'm remembering that room where he died. And I'm remembering there was a room where we had gathered as a family and friends and and the employees, two of which were with my dad for 20 years, came into that room and they went into the room where he passed and they paid their last respects to him. And I remember there could only be three at a time and so Jose, Nancy, and Andres went in And they came back into the room where our family was gathered. And they were grieving as if they were sons and daughters. And you know what I saw in that room? It wasn't loss. It was gain. Because it was gift. Because my dad was a gift. He lived his life as a gift. His life was not wasted. But his life was entrusted to his creator. And so is mine and yours. If that's not the way we live life, then we will lose. Then we will lose. And so I have this example that says, I'm called to finish well. I'm called to trust the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. That I am called to see that life under the sun is best lived above it. That if I have my eyes on the creator, the one who is the giver of all good gifts, and I don't worship the created things that God gave for me to enjoy, then those things actually become better. Rather than worshiping your family because you think you find significance, hope, and meaning in them, why don't you enjoy them and count them as a good gift? And when you do, it becomes a sweet aroma to the Lord and a pleasure to your heart. Marriage is so much better when it's enjoyed as a good gift of God. Food and the dinner table is enjoyed when it's a good gift 
of God. And he says, even this is vanity. Now, when he says vanity, remember what I said. It's temporal. It's temporal. But I want to point you to something eternal. And that's why I want to point you to these three tables. The three tables that God calls us to enter into and in, uh, interact with, with him. He's saying, come sit with me around these tables. The first table is the table of God's provision. The table of God's provision, which says, thank you. Thank you. What you have here today is a gift. It's not a curse. It's a blessing. And what are you called to say? Say it with me. Thank you. Can we say that together? Thank you. Enjoy him in gratitude. Enjoy him. He's given it to you. Say thank you for the things that God has given you. Number two is the table of God's protection. The table of God's protection. Psalm 23 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God is guarding your life and your heart. Do you hear me? When you have angst at night and your restless heart cannot sleep, God is guarding you and protecting you. He's prepared a table before the presence of your enemies. He will not allow a hair on your head to be harmed. And even if the worst should happen to you, which it will eventually, death, It will happen to you. It will not defeat you. Why? Because through the cross, he prepared that table for you. And he defeated the foe, sin, Satan, and death. All vanquished through the finished work of the cross. The table of protection. That even though I walk through the the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. He's present there. And I could have faith in him. Faith. When you're scared, the answer to fear is not you doing or striving, but you trusting and believing. Faith. And so join him at that table of protection. And then finally, there's the communion table. The table of forgiveness. That's the table we're going to partake from today. The table that says that something had to happen for the world to be made right. And I couldn't do it. Something had to happen for sin to be forgiven and I couldn't do it. Something had to happen for the human problem from the divine God. Is that God took on flesh and became one of us. That he lived a perfect and sinless life. That he died a sinner's death. A death that you and I deserve to die. To give us the righteousness of God. Only what Jesus deserves. And then he invites us up to the eternal banqueting table. And he says let's feast forever. That's what the king does. And so Solomon's life of vanity. Points to a life of eternity. And Solomon says it in chapter 3 that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And this is what Solomon longs for. And this is what Christ brings to fulfillment. Is the table of forgiveness by his broken body and shed blood. We're all going to come to that table for those who trust and believe in Jesus. We would come to that table and we receive the free gift of grace in God. And so this morning, is it a hard word? Yeah, it is. Is the book of Ecclesiastes confusing? It is. 
Is there clarity? Yes, there is. There's clarity in the cross. There's clarity in the hope that's provided in Jesus Christ. And when he's with his disciples, we have this account from Matthew. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing, it broke and he gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the of vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the temporary nature of life is given to us by the eternal table of God's forgiveness in Jesus, where he says that everything has been prepared for this table. That Jesus Christ has been crucified, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose again. He saw that. He knew it was going to happen. And he points to you and I here today, and he says, will you believe it? Will you receive my forgiveness? Will you receive by faith my protection? Will you receive with thanksgiving my provision? All at the cross. And so while Solomon lived his life to the fullest, Jesus gave it all up. He had all the wealth. He had all the wisdom. He had all the power. What did he choose? He chose to sacrifice himself so that he would gain, that he would gain you and me. And we would gain heaven and all that comes with it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that as we come to the communion table this morning, it is finished. We don't have to do a King Solomon experiment of life. But Lord, we can turn today and we could trust in you and walk in you. We could worship you. That God, you would have our hearts. And that Lord, we thank you for your provision, your protection, and your forgiveness. And we say to you, Lord, we receive the good gift that you've given of this life. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite the ushers to come in service and communion. For those of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, join us in this time. For those of you who would say that you're checking out Christianity and what it means to be a follower of Christ, then let us know. We would love to walk with you in what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Join us as we worship through taking this communion.